0: Strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. Seventy years before the life of Jesus, a runaway army officer became a slave as his punishment. His name was Spartacus. You would know him as Kirk Douglas. Spartacus led a slave revolt and he went around conquering right through Italy, defeating Roman legions that were sent against him, winning thousands of followers to his side, thousands of runaway slaves, people who had an axe to grind with Rome. He all of them joined his side and he went from South Italy up to the north of Italy, to the Alps, and then back down again, and he found himself eventually blocked in. Some pirates were supposed to smuggle he and his men across down to Sicily. They, they turned their back on him, and he found himself blocked in. And there was a Roman general, a very Rome's richest individual, who financed an army and was appointed by the Senate to lead this army. His name was, was Crassus and he defeated Spartacus. He defeated and put an end to the slave revolt. But what happened in the process was his glory was stolen by another. You see, one of the things that made it, success, made it easier for Spartacus to gain as much following was because Rome was fighting a bunch of other wars at the same time. So they had a number of their legions overseas fighting. And one of, one of, the, one of the commanders, a man by the name of Pompey, came back with a bunch of his legions, and took credit for the victory. So this made Crassus really, really angry. And one of the things that upset him even more was the fact that they couldn't find the body of Spartacus. Spartacus died on the battlefield. And in his anger, he decided that he was going to make an example of these runaway slaves. And he crucified every single one of the survivors. Over 6,000 up to maybe 10,000, he crucified each and every one of them. He took their bodies and 35 meters apart, he crucified them. All along Rome's most famous road, the Appian Road. This would be the equivalent of people being crucified 35 meters apart on the M1 or the M5 or the m 7 Imagine driving down one of those roads and every 35 meters seeing the body of a crucified traitor. And Crassus left the bodies up there for months for vultures to peck at the bodies. Imagine the smell. Imagine the rodents as you traveled down this road. And what was he saying? Crassus was telling the world, you you fight Rome and this is what you get. You muck around with us and this is what you get. You revolt, and this is what you get. Each and every one of them. We won't just kill your leader. We won't just kill Spartacus. That's not enough. We'll kill you as well. We'll torture you. And then we'll hold, hang your bodies up as an example for everybody else. Three days, three days after the crucifixion of Jesus, we are told that his followers, his disciples, were sitting in a room with their doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Do you think they were worried? Do you think they were stressed? You bet they were worried. You bet they were stressed. They knew the story of Spartacus. They knew what happened to people who revolted. They knew that if you mucked around with Rome, if you got on their bad side, you would be crucified too. And they think at that point that Rome, that the leaders have executed their followers. They believe that they're next. Peter was a wanted criminal at this point. He was the man who, in the process of the arrest of Jesus, had cut off the ear of one of the guards. That made him a wanted man. That took the whole peaceful movement, which had been peaceful up until that time, and it made it suddenly a violent movement. Were they worried? You bet they were worried. Were they fearful for their lives? You bet they were fearful for their lives. And if what happens next doesn't happen, the narrative we read is very different. If what happens next doesn't happen, the nation of Australia is very different. If what happens next doesn't happen, then when you go to Gallipoli, what you, what you won't find on the grave sites of the majority of it, the individuals, l- no greater love has a man than to lay down one's life for a friend. If what happens next doesn't happen, thousands of Muslims seeing Jesus in dreams doesn't happen. If what happens next in this room doesn't happen, then the millions of Chinese people experiencing miracles and coming to Christ doesn't happen. If what happens in this room next doesn't happen, then the narrative you and I read would be very different. If Jesus does not appear in this moment, this is how the story goes. Jesus crucified on Good Friday. Peter crucified Easter Monday. James and John killed on Tuesday, Matthew and Bartholomew killed on Wednesday, Thomas crucified on Thursday, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, enslaved on Friday. That's how the narrative goes. If you think that they weren't worried, you bet that they were worried. But then at that point, the stone on the first day of the week was rolled away and Jesus of Nazareth appeared in that room and said to his disciples in the middle of their grief, in the middle of their worry, they isn't a grave that can hold my body down. Today, we're talking about freedom from worry. We're talking about how we can have freedom in the midst of worry. If the resurrection is not the freedom that we have from worry, nothing is ever going to free us. The resurrection of Jesus is the victory. It gives us freedom from all of our worries and all of our concerns. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus proves that the cross was successful. When Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday, he took the punishment of our sins. And the resurrection solidifies that. It is God's message back to the world that says that my, grave cannot, my body cannot be held in the grave. Your sins have been paid for. You have reconciliation with God. And when the Bible talks about worry, it uses the same word for things like anxiety and concern. So when you read about in Philippians, when, when Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, he's saying, do not worry about anything. When Jesus, six times on the Sermon on the Mount, uses the word worry, he says things like, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink. Why do you worry about your clothes? Consider the lilies of the field. Do not worry about tomorrow, for worry will, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And when he says to his disciples, when you are brought before the synagogues, rulers and, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourself. But these are great teachings. But in the midst of the crucifixion, the disciples can be forgiven for forgetting the teachings of Jesus. Because when your life is on the line, and you know that your, your leader has been executed, executed, and you're probably next, it's easy to forget. What Jesus has had to say about worry. It's easy in the midst of difficult circumstances to forget all the things that God has made, all the promises God has made. It's very easy to forget that. And Jesus said to his own followers, now is your time of grief, but you will see me again and you will rejoice. The resurrection tells us that the time of grief is over, the time of worry is over, It's now our season for rejoicing. No matter what conditions of life we might find ourselves in, the resurrection tells us that now is the time for rejoicing. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the single greatest moment in human history. It pulls together all that went before it and all that is to come. The resurrection of Jesus stands at the center of humanity. Jesus standing in that room amongst his followers on that first Easter is the center point of all of human history. And what an incredible promise this is for us in the midst of our worry. What an incredible event this is for us to to use as our basis for how we overcome worry in our lives. And I want to point out just a couple of things to you from the text that might help you today. Did you notice when you read the resurrection passages, every single one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single one of them mention the first day of the week? John says it this way, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Later on in the passage, he says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Why do they all start with this phrase, on the first day of the week? Why not just say on Sunday? or whatever the equivalent word is in the Greek? Why not just say, on Sunday? Why why start off by saying, on the first day of the week? Why does John say, later that day, on the first day of the week? When Luke writes in the book of Acts, he says, on the first day of the week, we came together to, to break bread. Later on, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he said, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. Why do they all start with that phrase, on the first day of the week? What are they trying to communicate? There's a reason why Jesus rose on the first day of the week. You've heard that term on the first day of the week before. The place you've heard it is in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Day number 1, let there be light. Day number seven, he rested on the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying by raising himself from the dead on the first day of the week, he's saying, "The new creative world, the new creation has begun. The new world has begun. I'm recreating the world. just like God created it in the beginning. I'm recreating the world through my death and resurrection. This is the first day of the week. This is the first day of the new era. This is the first day of the new creation. This, this event changes now how we understand everything in the world, how we understand every single situation in the world is impacted now. It is the first day of the week. We are living now under the rule, under the kingship of the one who rose from the dead on the first day of the week. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man three, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. No one takes it from me. Referring to his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. Jesus is saying his resurrection changes the way you view the world. We're new creation. We are, we are beings now made in the image of the resurrected Jesus. If that is not a great promise in the midst of worry, nothing God will ever promise us will be good enough for us. If the disciples, having Jesus in their very midst, having appeared in their very midst, were still worried about the authorities, nothing was ever going to take that worry away from them. If Jesus, having come into their very presence as a resurrected man, was still had Thomas saying things like, I'm worried about my mortgage repayments. Imagine if Mary still said, Yeah, I'm still worried about my teenagers. No, in the midst of the resurrected Jesus, they had him standing in their very presence. It changed and altered the way they viewed the world forever. And that's what the resurrection has to do for you. It has to captivate your heart so much that no matter what happens to you in life, no matter what worry comes to you in life, your eyes are still fixated on the man who is risen standing in your very midst. What was that moment like for them? sitting, terrified, worried, and suddenly Jesus, crucified man, comes back from the grave and says, peace. We idealize this image. I guarantee you, a resurrected man stands in our midst today. People are going to be screaming. People are going to be running scared. People are probably going to let out a few swear words, right? I bet his disciples did all of that and more, The resurrection of Jesus is the center point of humanity. It changes the way we view and the way we understand the world. That great prophetic message in the book of Isaiah, what does it say? What does it talk about when it talks about the suffering servant? It describes him as a man, despised and rejected. A man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. What is it saying about him? He is a man who knows what worry is like. He is a man who is acquainted with stress and the grief that comes from worry. And then it says in verse 4, Surely he took up our infirmities, but not just that, and carried our sorrows. What does it mean that he carried our sorrows? It means that at the cross he also carried our worries, and he also carried our, carries our stress. Think about that in the midst of your worry. That Jesus has defeated that, that worry that you're having. He's defeated it at the cross because he took on your worries at the cross as well. He doesn't just take our sin. He takes on all of the mental and the physical aspects that come with our sin. And he's defeated them at the cross and his resurrection is the way that he's vindicated of that. And then what does it say in verse 11? After the anguish of his soul, after the worry and the torment and the pain that comes upon him at the cross, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The resurrection is Jesus, his message to the world where he is saying, I'm satisfied now. I'm satisfied. All of the, the sin and the punishment and the worry, the stress, the guilt, everything that was upon the people of this world, I have taken it upon myself and I've been victorious over it at the cross. And now he has seen the light of life and he is satisfied. What an incredible, remarkable promise. But I also want to say this to you, that I do believe that to have freedom from worry, we need to recognize that there is one thing that we ought to be worried about. There is one thing that we ought to be worried about. You see, the greatest worry our society has is not the environment, it's not climate change, it's not the economy, it's not the gender debate. The greatest worry we as a society has is that we as a society have downplayed the significance of the resurrection and what it means for us as a society. We've taken this remarkable historical event, which sits at the very centrepiece of humanity, and we have, we have downplayed its significance. And to me, friends, that is a tremendous reason for us to be worried. It's a tremendous reason for us to be concerned. Let me give you an example of this. Recently, a politician of ours attended a church service on Easter. And having come out of that church service, he was interviewed by journalists and he said, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Christian or you're an atheist. It doesn't matter what you are. This holiday is one of hope. It doesn't matter what you are. It's all the same. Can I ask you something? Is it the same? Is it the same? You've just come out of a service where hopefully they've spoken about the greatest moment in all of human history and you really think it's the same thing? Really? Do I have your permission to be a bit controversial this morning? And guess what? I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. So if I say something controversial, I don't have to worry about Facebook shutting down my Facebook account or Twitter blocking me or anything like that. I'm going to say something controversial today. The prophet of Islam, Muhammad. And this isn't me telling you this. This is what Muslims will tell you about Muhammad. Muhammad had an adopted son. His name was Zayd. And Muhammad falls for his adopted son's wife. And he wants to marry her. So you know what he does? He breaks off the contract that he then had with Zayed, and Zayed is no longer his adopted son, in order that he can marry Zayed's wife and not be charged with the people of committing incest. That's what he does. This week I had a conversation with a person from a Buddhist background. I had a conversation with a person from a Hindu background. Both of them believe in the doctrine of karma you pay for your sins. And both of them admitted to me that if you follow the logic of people paying for their sins for themselves, that the Jews who were, who were killed thousands, hundreds of thousands every day in the concentration camps must have been paying for their sins and that's why they died. We preach Christ crucified. Now I understand that Australians, we're falling behind when it comes to world standards in education, but it doesn't take a band six in that plan to tell you that those things are not the same thing. Am I wrong? So when we preach the resurrection of Jesus, we're preaching the greatest message that the world has ever seen. And I'm not letting anybody corrupt that message and say it's all one in the same thing. And that's the greatest worry we have. The greatest worry we have Is that what the resurrection tells us is that all of the graves that you stood at, Danny, at Lone Pine, one day are going to be opened up. That's what the resurrection tells us. The resurrection tells us that all of those who died at Christ Church, all of those who died in Sri Lanka, their graves are one day going to be opened up and they're going to stand in front of the risen Lord. That's what the resurrection tells us. And it causes me great worry to think that people are downplaying the significance of that. We're not going to let them downplay the significance of that because when my Lord was put on the cross, three days later he rose from the dead and I'm not going to let anybody say that that is not the greatest moment in all of history. Am I wrong? There came a time when a general, when a king by the name of Antiochus picked a fight with the Romans about 150 years before Jesus and Rome had had enough they sent one of, their, one of their leaders, one of their commanders of the Senate, a guy by the name of Gaius Populus Linus. What a name. And he said, when you go and you confront Antiochus and your army stands before him, don't waste any time. It's either unconditional surrender or nothing. It's e- you tell him to take his tail between his legs and go home or it's nothing. And when Antiochus and Gaius came face to face, he gave Antiochus the conditions of surrender and Antiochus said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to check with with my, my advisors whether or not this is a good deal. Gaius stopped him right there. He pulled out his cane, and he drew a circle around where Antiochus was standing. Have you heard the expression, line in the sand? It's actually circle in the sand. He drew a circle around him and said, you don't take another step out of this circle until you give me your decision. And what I believe has happened at the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus drew a circle around humanity and said to humanity, You don't take another step until you make your decision. Are you for Christ or are you against Christ? That's what the resurrection says. And we can spend a lot of time talking about Thomas's doubt and the evidence that people require for the resurrection. I think it's a very important question. I spent a lot of my own time looking at the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It's been the centre of my walk with God, understanding the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And we can talk about that. And people say things like, a resurrection is not possible, it's against the laws of nature. No, it's not. If you spent any time studying philosophy and studying how the laws of nature, how scientists understand it, there's nothing unscientific about the resurrection of Jesus. It conforms to all of the expected principles of historical investigation. We know for certain that Jesus was crucified. We know for certain that the tomb was found empty. We know for certain historically that that he appeared to his followers of Jesus. But the line is drawn in the sand. The circle is drawn. Where do you take your stand? And if you take your stand anywhere outside the resurrection of Jesus, then you do have reason to worry, my friends. For Jesus said, for Zechariah the prophet said this, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced. In other words, the resurrected Jesus will stand in the midst of every single one of us, just like He stood in that room that day with his disciples, in the midst of, of their worry. Jesus will stand in the midst of each and every one of that, in the midst of each and every one of us. and we will look upon Him, the one who was pierced on our behalf. He's drawn the circle in the sand. Where do you take your stand? Can I close with this? Let's close by having a bit of fun. But Let's close with a bit of audience participation. We're going to play a game. Has anybody seen the game Family Feud? Sparkside Feud today. So what we're going to do is, is in, the, in, the, in the minute, our, our guys from the, the media room are going to put up a slide. They can hear us, right? Hopefully, okay. So they're going to put up a slide. Now, they're going to show you a question. And it's up to the audience to call out what they think the answers are. And you've got three strikes. He rose on the three days. If you don't win this game, three days is going to be the least of your problems. But let's show the question for everybody. Okay, so here's the question. According to survey data, what are the things which worry Australians the most? Now, I've combined research from a couple of different surveys to get this data. So according to survey data, what are the things which worry Australians the most? Are we ready for it? All right, so call out your answers, one at a time. Climate change? Is climate change on the list? Oh, wrong. Money, is money, okay, money or the equivalent of money, is that on the list? Yeah, finances and bills, I think that's on the list. Okay, what else? Health, 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 health. health or healthcare, is that on the list? Yeah, health issues, that's on the list. What else worries Australians? Jobs, job security, career, finance, all that sort of stuff, is that on the list? Yep, we're doing well. Okay. Relationships, are they on the list? Anything to do with relationships, are they on the list? Yep, marital and family drama. Okay, so we've got one side of the, we've got one column there. What else is on the list? Sorry? The environment? Somebody else said environment, but that wasn't on the list, John. Yeah. Danny, we're going to give you a say. What do you reckon? <laughs> is I give up on the list. <laughs> All right. But what else, guys? What else worries you? Security. Security, Security on the list? I heard, I heard education um, as well, but we won't, is that, we won't count that one. What else Come on, what else do we have? Conflict. Is conflict on the list? Anywhere in there? That sort of comes under family drama, I, I guess. Oh, you mean war. Is, war. is war on the list? War or conflict on the list? Wow, okay, oh, three strikes and we're out. Okay, I'll give you one more chance. Anything else that we want? What else do we think is on the list? Sorry? Terrorism was already said, but yeah, yeah. What what worries you people? How they look, okay, how they look, all right, is how I look on the list. Okay, what other people think of them is on the list. That's actually a very important one. That was probably the biggest thing that worried most people in Jesus' day. I saw someone with a hand up. I think, before. Yeah, what, what was... Our government worries us. They're going to worry us no matter what they do anyway. But but, but they're not on the list. They should be on the list. All right. uh, anything else that worries us? Law and order, does that worry us? Are we worried about... Oh, there was no more strikes anyway, but that's not on the list. Anyway. <laughs> Families. Well, we've got family drama there as well. I, I, I think what was on the list is getting old. Right. I, I'm, I get worried about getting old sometimes. Come on, people there's got to be stuff worrying you and you're probably carrying it right now. Who's preaching at church on Sunday? Is that on the... <laughs> That's all this. Come on, how many of you are worried about your weight? Isn't anybody in this room worried about their weight? Right? And aren't any of you worried about your children? Right? We're probably the least worryable people in the world and worryable is not a word. But I want to say something to you, okay, okay. what this proves, right, by the people that were surveyed here, because a lot of people in this room said things like climate change, all those sorts of things, what this list proves is that most people are concerned about the stuff going on in their own lives than to be concerned about the stuff going on in the outside world. But the truth is, yeah, there are a lot of things that should worry about us, that we should be worried about in the world. All those things are genuine things to be worried about, you know, if your if teenage son or daughter is, is doing drugs or something, that's a genuine reason to be worried, Right? And, you know, if you're worried about what you're going to do when you retire and and all those sorts of things, that's, that's a genuine reason to worry. But I want to say this to you. How do you handle all of those worries? That's the key. How are you going to handle those worries that come into your life? In the book of Revelation, John says this. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Did you pick up something that happened in that passage? How can something be slain but standing? Doesn't the word slain mean dead? What is John saying? He's saying that for all the sin, for all the worry, for all the grief, for everything that came upon Jesus at the cross, he was slain, but he was left standing. He was crucified, yet he was resurrected. That principle... Slain, but standing, that's how we're going to address all the worries we have in our life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those things might get us down, but because of Jesus, we're standing. Slain, but standing. Worried, but a great Savior. Jesus at the cross took our worries and his grief. And if it couldn't bring him down, it's definitely not going to bring us down, because he's on our side slain but standing crucified but resurrected what a god we have what a god we have our resurrected god father i thank you so much lord thank you so much that at the cross lord you were slain but three days later you were standing you were standing lord and i just want to pray for all of us lord That our world is being slain at the moment, Lord. We have a lot to worry about, Lord. We worry about the personal things that we struggle with in life, Lord. We worry about the things that our world struggles with, Lord. And we keep on turning to more and more struggles, Lord. But we know, Lord, that at the centre of everything was you, our lamb, who is still standing, Lord. And I just want to pray for those in the audience, Lord, who are grieving at the moment or worried at the moment, or stressed, that you might take that burden from them, Lord, this moment. And for all the people here who are, who are celebrating at the moment, who are rejoicing, we pray that you'll continue that season of blessing for them, Lord. But most importantly, Lord, we pray for our church, Lord. We know it's our responsibility to take the gospel to the world, Lord. Pray that we will be faithful, just like you're faithful to us in that. And I want to pray especially, Lord, that you'll pour in the season of harvest for this church, Lord, that we might be able to go and reach many, many people, Lord, for you. I want to pray a blessing for all of us, Lord, that we might walk faithfully and closer to you and learn from your word, Lord Jesus. Most importantly, Lord, we pray the prayer that, that your people have been praying for 2,000 years, that you might come, Lord Jesus.